Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Matt Michelados. Uh, Matt is the author of a bunch of things, and he has a podcast that he's a part of. Uh, his Facebook profile is one of the few things that makes my newsfeed a better place. And we might get to some of those things in this conversation, but he's actually here to talk about his fantasy trilogy, The Sunlit Lands. Book three, The Story King, comes out the 8th of June. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm thrilled to be here with you. It is, it's always difficult when I have an author on and we're going to talk about multiple books because... <sighs> You know, it's like, you know, how much do you spoil, how much, right. do you, how much of the first, you know, books do you assume that the reader knows? So, uh, I'm going to leave it up to you on how much you want to say about certain things. Um, I, I'll let you know from the outset, and this is, this is a confession for me. I haven't actually made it to the Story King yet. I'm mm. just finishing up book two, and this is the, here's, herein lies the problem, Okay. Um, we just moved to the UK a few months ago and books one and two physical copies of those books were in a box. And (laughs) can you think, can you imagine which one box, one box, all of our, the rest of our stuff arrived safely, but there was one box that did not arrive. And it was the book, it was the box that had all of the books that I had not read for review. Uh, and I, and I, the reason why I had not read books one and two is because I had had them for probably a year at that point. Tendale had been kind enough to provide me a copy with books one and two. Uh, and I told them I will not read these until I have access to book three, uh, because yeah. I, I don't want to have to wait. Um, at the end of book two, I'd rather just, I'd, I would rather just have all these, you know, all together. And so, uh, by the time that I realized that I did not have the books one and two anymore. And by the time that I actually settled in, uh, to our new living space. And then we, we scheduled this interview and we scheduled it far enough out. I said to myself, I will have time to read all three of these books and oh yeah that I, was ambitious it was very ambitious uh because i thought not having opened the page that these would be books that it would take me you know two days three days tops each to read and instead i spent an entire week just enjoying and reading at a nice leisurely pace uh, the Crescent Stone book one, because these books are so deep and nuanced and in its imagery, in the thematic elements, in the storytelling. Uh, it, it was much different than what I expected. And, 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 I say that and that makes it sound like I didn't expect much from you. And that's not the case at all. But this was, it it was so much more of a rich storytelling experience than what I thinking this is a Christian fantasy book. And I have read lots of Christian fantasy. Uh, I know exactly what you're saying. This is thought. 
Go ahead. You thought that I, now I love the Narnia books, but you thought that a Jesus lion was going to come in and explain everything at the end of each book. Well, I knew that you would do better than that. <laughs> I would. But, but we're on the spectrum. We thought we'd be close. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just like looked at them and, and, and it's not to, it's not to like denigrate anyone else who is writing Christian no, fantasy. No, no, no. No, there's uh, lots of wonderful Christian fantasy, but you're right. These books, they're in the genre, but they're uh, they're significantly different than what you're thinking if you heard, oh, a Christian fantasy novel. Um, yeah. I mean, they address different topics. They hit different themes. Uh, and, and I think uh, I am probably more versed in fantasy fiction than is typical for your Christian fantasy authors, like mainstream fantasy, I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that affects things as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's really funny, Josh. And I love that you just told me straight out. I've been in so many interviews where they, they clearly have not read whatever book we're talking about. <laughs> and they're just kind of feeling their way through the interview. They're like, tell us about the cover. I really like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's, and you know what? The covers are great. And uh, I wish I had the covers because I don't actually have the covers because I only have I only have digital copies. So I've been reading these on my phone. And this is like oh, so I, I know you I know you want ebook sales, uh, but this is the kind For of sure. book that you really want a physical copy of because that is part of the reading experience. This type of literature, I think, it needs my opinion needs to be felt there needs to be a tactile element to it and also the covers are very very well done very nice um so let's if if our listeners know nothing about this series uh we've probably given them a confusing and rather lengthy intro (laughs) and that's fine uh so can you just give us an overview of the series as a whole yeah so the, maybe it would be helpful to tell you how the series started okay, and, let's, and let's how we ended there. up where we are. So I grew up, the, some of the first books I remember reading were actually The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, when I was too young for them. Mm. Uh, and then I read the Narnia books after. So, And I was reading the Narnia books. I'm like, oh, these are so much easier to read. Why didn't someone give me these? <laughs> and uh, like, it took me a full year to read Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. uh, like a school year. So anyway, they're books I've always loved. And what happened was at Tyndale, so I've been publishing books at Tyndale for, gosh, 15, almost 15 years, 12, 13 years, I don't know. Uh, And what happened is a friend of mine became an acquisitions editor, and I just sent her a note and said, we should uh, should do a book together sometime. And she's going to be working on kids' books. So the person in charge of children's books at Tyndale reached out to me. Her name's Linda. Howard, and she said, let's get a meal. I'm going to be in town, and my good friend Sarah Atkinson was there, and I said, if you could have any book, what would you want? And she was like, I would love a fantasy series, and I was like, oh, I'd be thrilled to do a fantasy series. And she said, and we're getting a lot of questions from people like uh, about helping their young adults deal with issues related to race and privilege and those sorts of questions, and it's just, it's a hard topic to approach. Uh, and as it happens, this is a topic I've spent a lot of time on for a lot of years. Um, now I'm white, uh, but with the you know guidance of a bunch of my friends who are people of color, 
have walked through a lot of things, read a lot of things. Um, and, and so I was like, this sounds amazing. And actually fantasy novels are pretty well set up to talk about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so let me just walk you through the trilogy just thematically. We start with the Crescent Stone, where what we're really exploring is the question of uh, privilege. And when I say privilege, what I mean is, I know some people are touchy about that, that word. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is, is there something about your life that is an advantage that you would not have given some, if you had a different set of uh, qualities about your life? So our main character is a woman named Madeline who has a lot of privilege in a variety of ways. So she's white. She's from an upper class family. She's smart. She's athletic. She's popular. She's good at pretty much everything she tries her hand at. Uh, But, you know, that's not super fun in a novel. So she also has a complexity. Like she doesn't have good health. She actually has a terminal illness. Uh, so what happens is someone comes from this fantasy world, so it's like a separate world, into her world and says, we'll heal you completely if you'll come and work for us and fight in this war we've been in. So good guys versus bad guys. And you just fight for a year, and assuming all goes well, you'll be completely healed and we'll send you home. And so she she agrees to that, right, because she has a terminal disease. What else is she going to do? And her, some of her close friends go with her. Uh, so uh, a guy named Jason Wu, who's her chemistry uh, partner, and, uh, y- you know, others. She meets others along the way, and I don't want to give any spoilers necessarily. But the, what happens is it becomes a book about recognizing the, the good things in your life and how you can use those uh, to help others who don't have the same advantages and also just recognizing that there are times where your advantage is maybe causing harm to others uh, and, and that it's complicated, right? Mm. So the book's fun. It's funny. It's not preachy. Uh, I mean, most people don't feel like it's preachy. So that's kind of the first book is exploring that question. Then in the second book, we start exploring, okay, so we know there's injustice in the world, and a lot of it is in the systems or the politics or the governments or the laws or or just cultural issues between us, like all these things, how do you even deal with that? Um, That's a lot of what's happening in the second book as our heroes have discovered some underlying issues in the Sunlit Lands and they're trying to help find a solution. Uh, And then the third book, which you haven't read yet, and I won't spoil it for you, maybe I'll come on again after you read it. Um, the The third book kind of explores the question of uh, well, a variety of questions, but one of the key ones is, well, what do we do when we don't have a common memory or a common history mm-hmm. of the reality of our past as individuals, as communities, as nations, or the world? What do we do with the fact that maybe we disagree about the past, or we've forgotten things, uh, and we're not even sure of our own selves as human beings? Uh, which is a complex question, which really is best addressed in fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that that was kind of the origin, was like, what if we could have a really vibrant, interesting series that like touches on these things in an entertaining way, isn't preachy at all, but in a lot of, in a lot of fantasy fiction in the past, 
you have races, right? Like literal ra- elves and orcs and halflings and, you know, ants and whatever. Uh, and it's never, it, they're all monolithic. It's like all orcs are evil, of course. All elves are good, of course. Dwarves are kind of, I don't know, maybe in the middle. Um, but mostly good. And we don't, I, uh, until relatively recently, we don't acknowledge that this might be a good metaphor for talking about sort of the way we treat people of different actual human ethnicities and cultures and, and things like that. So anyway, let me pause there. But that's kind of where it started. That's that's how we got moving into these books. This is um, like these, these are not easy questions. Um, no, 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 no. Like the, this is this is a very difficult. Like each each of these are very complex questions. They're but they're they're very needed questions. Question. I mean, questions to answer. There's not a definite easy. Here's your answer. The answers to these questions are very complex and messy and nuanced. Right. So, in a way, I think that that almost makes it your job a little easier because <laughs> you, it, it's you you can't write a simplistic story when you're asking questions like this no. because the questions are so complex the story by its nature then has to be very complex and nuanced as right. well so yeah, you, you're developing right yeah you're mm-hmm. so you, you're developing these themes how does the taking those themes begin to say okay this is um how it's going to work out in the story how how did you make that connection from one to the other yeah so you're exactly right josh it's it's dishonest to write a book like this and say here's the answer just do this and you'll be fine uh so what's great is what I was able to do is take a lot of our questions in our world and our community uh, and use a completely invented society to examine those things in the absence of some of the emotional trauma and questions and confusion that comes up in our real world uh, by, by essentially by translating it to a foreign culture, right, an invented mm-hmm. culture. We're able to look at those things in a different way, uh, but it has to be complicated. And the answers have to be hard. Uh, you have to see, and this is part of what I love about young adult fiction. Young adult fiction is always about growth, uh, about becoming adults, about transformation, about the brokenness of the world, and maybe we can make it better. Uh, so young adults are the perfect people to throw into this situation. So I love that. I have teenagers trying to solve really complicated questions and making mistakes uh, and finding answers that work in one sense and don't in another uh, and having beautiful triumphs occasionally. Uh, And what I really shy away from, and uh, you've read the first two books, so you know this already. I don't like the easy answers. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of them. So I think if it's not complex, if your characters aren't wrestling with it, why are we even writing this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times what I was doing is I was pushing on things. I was like, okay, these guys are the bad guys. Why are they, like, in what sense are they bad? They don't think of themselves as bad. We have to interrogate that. Or this person 
we think is righteous and good, like what are the downsides of that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't know. And I think it's I think it's fun. I think it makes for more compelling fiction, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, uh, I, truer stories. As, as someone who I've served as a, as a youth pastor uh, and I've also ministered to adults, and it's consistently the kids, uh, more so than the adults. The adults, uh, you're good people, by the way, those of you who are adults and I was your pastor, love you, uh, but <laughs> you're more set in your ways than your kids are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and, and I, I'll, I'll include myself there as as an adult. Um, this generation that is coming up, uh, particularly in the the issues that your book addresses, and areas of privilege, and injustice, and race related issues, um, this next generation is really, really looking for answers. And yeah. they are becoming a driving force uh, that is demanding answers and demanding accountability right. and asking for change. Um, at the same time, there's obviously there's a lot of pushback and even pushback within the church on some of these issues and the way they're expressed. Without, I guess, I guess. You can make it as political as you want uh, in your answer. I'll, I'll leave that to you. But with how how do you write something like this? And because because I, I know what what would happen to me is that it would it would end up becoming political commentary for me if I tried to write something like this. How did you yeah. separate the like the real world and your fantasy world? Even though there's a lot of elements of the real world that come into play and are explicitly acknowledged and talked about yeah for sure for sure and they're they're connected to characters though right i'll Mm -hmm. I'll give you an inch i'll give you an interesting example uh there's a scene well okay let me say this first actually i had someone write me a couple months ago that said i've been reading your books and it's like you predicted a bunch of stuff that was about to happen in our culture and, you know, she acknowledged, you You must have written these, you know, eight months, nine months before they came out. And she starts listing all these things that happened in the book that she's seeing reflected in our culture. And she's like, how, how did you do that? Uh, and, oh, my gosh, the third book, the opening, one of the opening scenes actually has a rally with white supremacists called the Vain Boys, right, um, which was meant as a reference to this little known group that we in the Northwest were familiar with called the mm-hmm. proud boys who've and since gone national. And like everyone knows everyone's them. familiar with them now. Right. And now people are going to read the book and everyone's going to go like, Oh, that's the proud boys. But when I first wrote it, it was like, yeah, people in the Northwest will be, that's who we're talking about. Uh, and I mean, it's a fictional group, but you know, it's modeled on them in mm-hmm. some sense. Anyway, the answer to that question is not that I have some crystal ball. It's that if you look at history at all, these things are cyclical. We, mm-hmm. It's not that we have this thing happen one day. It's that it's been happening for, for decades, for centuries, right? So part of it is just opening our eyes to what's going on around us. And the other is, uh, so here's the story piece there in, in the Crescent Stone. There's a scene where Madeline, 
uh, and her best friend Jason, Wu, who's Chinese-American, they're walking through this tunnel. And as they're moving through the tunnel, they're seeing the brickwork is getting older and older. So it starts pretty modern. And they're going back, and it looks like it's, you know, eventually we're getting the stuff from, like, the 1800s, and then we get to, like, cave. So I wrote that scene originally all from Madeline's point of view. And my editor said, I think we need a second point of view in this book. Like, Madeline's great, but I think we need a contrast also. I was like, okay, well, let's experiment with it. So I rewrote the scene from, and Madeline had noticed when she was walking, some of the bricks had writing on them. Uh, you know, strange writing she couldn't read. And then Jason, I rewrote the scene from Jason's point of view, and Jason recognizes the writing. Now, this is this is me as author having a moment of understanding also. I kind of had a vague idea of how this was all built and all these things. Jason goes, oh, that's Chinese. And he recognizes what it is. It's, it's people's names. Uh, it's things like that. He recognizes it as coming from the time when a lot of Chinese people were coming to the United States and being used as laborers. Um, and, and it brings in for Jason all these things where he and Madeline now are able to have this conversation where he's talking about his grandparents coming from China and what that experience was like. And, uh, you know, they didn't go through Ellis Island. They came through Angel Island. Why is that different? And, uh, you, you know, paper sons, like all this kind of stuff. Uh, because we were opening ourselves to another point of view. Seeing things through Jason's eyes instead of Madeline's helped us to see something different in the world, uh, even though it's an invented world in some sense. Um, so I think things like that, these books were hard to write because I had to keep thinking of those sorts of things. And I had a lot of friends who were Chinese, who were black, who were native, uh, reading the books and coming back to me in like early drafts, right? And saying like, hey, man, you got to change this. This isn't correct. Right. Um, or I, I read it this way. So and that's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's what uh, I loved it, actually. But it's a lot of work yeah. <laughs> to like see things from others point of view. But that's the whole point of books like these. Yeah. 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 And I think there and I'm so glad that you, you mentioned sort of the people you had surrounding you in writing this book because uh, a fair portion of the book is from Jason's point of view. And yeah. there, there is some, <clears throat> there's some difficulty in being a white person and writing a minority character and taking on that voice. Uh, you know, what was, what like fears or trepidations did you have in like, entering into that being like, okay, I don't, I, I can't whitewash this character. I don't right. want to come in and be like, I know everything about your, this culture. No. You know, what did you do to ensure that you wrote Jason's character in a way that was respectful of the background that you gave him? Yeah. Well, a couple things. One is this is the, Chinese particularly culture is one that I'm more networked in. Mm -hmm. um, my wife and I lived in, in Asia for several years. We have close friends um, who are Chinese. So we've, we've been in mainland China, in people's homes, you know, these sorts of things. So that gives me a baseline advantage from your typical white writer, right? It doesn't make it like a, you know, people talk about own voices. Like I didn't grow up Chinese, uh, part of Chinese culture, I mean. Um, 
so there's there's a piece where I cheated and that I gave myself a point of view that was less work in that sense. Like I speak Chinese, you know, things like that. Um, not very well, by the way. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, the next thing is you write, you do the research, you write it as best as you can. Um, but like anything, as an outsider to the culture, there are just misses along the way. Now, Jason's Chinese American. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he grew up in the U.S., so, you know, gave myself some advantages there as far as understanding. Um, and then, yeah, the next thing was I needed people that it was, it, it is their hard culture, their experience to read it and give me feedback on when I was missing, where I was, right? The places where you just said something is like, you know, there would have to be a pretty significant character reason to respond the way he did in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just relied on those folks and trusted that what they were saying uh, was was worth listening to, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think the reality is probably, <laughs> almost certainly, there's some stuff that uh, made it into the books that someone could read it and go like, Ugh, yeah, that that's a miss. And I have to embrace that and just be okay with it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, certainly I would apologize for it if it harmed someone or hurt them anyway. But I think, yeah, we we learn to inhabit each other's points of view, and I think that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of work and, and, yeah, humility in the sense of being able to mess up, uh, but we have a lot of eyes on these things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the hope is by the time it gets to print and you still get stuff like there's a moment. So Jason's in, um, <laughs> there's this moment where Jason's with a couple friends. So one of them's native Hawaiian. Uh, mm-hmm. and one of them is uh native. He's from the Crow tribe. Uh, and which, you know, there's other names for the tribe, but anyway, they're, they're together in sort of an armory and there's a bunch of weapons. There's like fantasy weapons there. And then there's like weapons from earth and these these two guys have taken to using weapons that are traditional to their culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all teenagers. So Jason comes in, they're trying to help him. They're like, hey, you can wear this armor. He's like, that's Japanese, you jerks. And they're like, oh, right, okay, well, what's Chinese look like? And, and Jason kind of doesn't know. And that's part of reality, too. We don't all know everything about our cultural backgrounds. Anyway, he ends up finding uh, some Chinese armor and, like, all this kind of stuff. He's kind of into it. Uh, but one of my friends who read it after it was kind of too late to make changes is Chinese American. Uh, and he was reading it and he's like, oh man, if I was in a magical like armory. I wouldn't be like, Oh, can I get some Chinese stuff? I'd be like, what's the coolest thing here? Like, do you have laser guns? Do you have like this kind of thing? And I was like, you know, that's a really, that's a really fair feedback. Like, I can make all, I can say, oh, character-wise, you know, with these other guys pushing for it, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, you know, I, yeah, there's a there's a lot of people in my family and my friends who are Asian-American who would say, like, yeah, I wouldn't do that, man. I'm not going to wear something from, you know, the Tang Dynasty when I could grab a revolver or something. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, so I, I think you just got to be watching for stuff like that, too. Mm-hmm. This... I was trying to think about the last time I read a novel in the realm of Christian fiction 
that had an Asian American protagonist. Huh. And I don't know. I I I, I couldn't think of one. That's not to say that there aren't. Uh, but at least That's a good question. So so it, I, I will say at least. And I guess if you're listening to this and you know of some, I would love to. I would love to to hear some titles because I would love to expand uh, my my own uh, reading base in that area. But, but I, I really I couldn't think of any. And also, a lot of times when we talk about race relations in the United States, it is it's uh, it's black and white. And Asian Americans yeah. are often left out of that conversation, um, yeah. even you know more so than than Hispanic Americans or Native Americans. Asian Americans have this, you know, it's the, the model minority uh, sort of motif myth that has been been surrounding them for you know generations. Um, so this, like, we don't really talk about race relations a whole lot in Christian fiction, uh, in particular racial issues that are specific to Asian American communities. And I was going to ask you, you know, how those, why are those issues important to you? It seems like it's because of your connection to the community that you already felt like that, you know, you were, you already knew what those issues were. What has the reaction been then to, you know, from readers? Has there been people that said, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know about any of this? Uh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think I should say Jason, by the way, is by far the most beloved character. Like when fans write to say how much they love mm-hmm. these books, it's almost always Jason is my favorite. Like, you know, he's taken a vow that he'll only speak words that are true. So he's constantly causing trouble. He volunteers information he shouldn't, you know, all these things. Um, he's a really delightful person. Um, but yeah, I think, oh no, Josh, I lost the question. It was, um, you asked me again. I'm sorry. If, if reader, well, the, the original question was, why are these issues important to you? I feel like you've oh, already yeah. kind of covered that. So um, have people, like, what has the reaction been? Because I, I feel like a lot oh, of readers, yeah. I think a lot of readers may be coming to this being like, uh, this isn't what they think of when they think of like race related issues. Yeah, you know, um, you know what I love is that by putting this book in another context, right? It's not about. Um, here's a good example I think is OK to share. So I have a friend who has been a really key part of reading these books and helping me think through things on the front end. And that I even called him before I wrote the third book and said, here's why I'm thinking about going. Like what helped me understand what, uh, what like landmines I should be looking out for. So he's African American. And there's a scene in the second book. Oh, might be in the first book. Uh, I think it's in the first book where there's a, a kind of like the the equivalent of what you would think of as like an orc, right? Uh, gets accosted by the equivalent of an elf who's sort of a guard, like a police presence almost. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole interaction there. And it's not a good interaction. 
but but this kid just tried to steal something from one of the main characters, and, and it all goes south. Uh, and then kind of going on, going on. And my, my friend read that scene, and he said he kept going, kept reading the book, and he was quite a ways in where before he recognized, he's like, oh my gosh, that was just like some of the interactions we're seeing happening with black people and police officers today. And he's like, I didn't even notice it because it wasn't a white cop and a, and a black kid. And he's like, so for him, all of a sudden it gave him this insight into this moment where he was, he didn't see it. And he was like, Oh my gosh, it gave him an insight into himself. And I think there not because I planned that for him or anything like that, right? But that's the power of story, mm-hmm. is that sometimes we see ourselves in the story, sometimes we don't, and sometimes we're surprised by an insight we get. And most often, that's what I hear from people. They're like, I didn't realize what was happening in the first book till three-fourths of the way through, and I recognized you had given me all of the information, you told me everything I knew to, to need to already know what was about to happen, but when it happened, I was still surprised, mm-hmm. and it made me realize like that's privilege. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think there's some stuff built into the book that the hope is that you're having fun, you're enjoying yourself, but then there's this moment of clarity, of insight about the world of the sunlit lands that you suddenly go like, oh wait, hold on a minute. Mm-hmm. How can I bring any of that home back to the real world? So, and that's, oh my gosh, that's the best feedback. I love it when someone writes me. <laughs> oh, shoot. I have this great story. Oh, is this okay to share? Uh, okay. I, uh, I think if I, I think I can disguise this enough. Okay. There's a, um, in the second book, there's a, there's a group of necromancers, right? Mm-hmm. So evil, evil black men. Have you gotten to this part, Josh? Yes. Uh, Okay. Evil black magic, super scary. Everyone's afraid of them. They kind of keep to themselves, but everyone's like, ugh, don't mess with the necromancers. Everybody hates them. And there's a moment where one of our main characters ends up going to the city of the necromancers and uh, has this discovery that things are different than advertised. Mm -hmm. Uh, some things that are believed about them are true and then others aren't. And it's much more complex, much more nuanced uh, than he thought. And this, this sweet kid sent me an email uh, after they read the second book. And they said, I was really disappointed that you had necromancers in, in your book. It's so evil. And uh, I thought this was meant to be Christian and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I was reading the letter. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I wrote them back and I said, did you read these two chapters where the, where the one character goes to the city of the necromancers and discovers some things? And they said, well, I'll be honest, I, I skipped those because I was so concerned about the evil spirituality. And I just had to laugh because by skipping them, this person had actually done what, what was happening in the story, had dismissed the people in the city uh, because there was a narrative about them that uh, they found compelling. And you discover in the city that that's not actually true. So it's kind of this cool thing where these books, there are these moments where people are, and and this this kid was delightful. Like I wrote them back and said, hey, go look back at the chapter. Here's what's discovered. And they went and read it, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I love this book. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I can't believe it. I just had this insight about myself. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've been getting a lot of that kind of feedback, and I just love it. It's it's so wonderful. And I had that experience writing it, right? These mm-hmm. moments where I recognize, like, this isn't just a blind spot. It's a thing that has never crossed my path to think about. What do mm-hmm. I do with that? Yes. The sto- story, story has this ability, fiction has this ability to really help us reframe our own narratives because we whether it's through our own culture whether it's through our upbringing whether it's through the types of media that we consume then we have these certain narratives that are already like ingrained and we think a certain way you know because of our you know political background religious background economic background social background whatever Mm-hmm. And it can be difficult to get outside of that narrative because you've already decided that we know what the story is and we know what the answers are. But in fiction, and you do this so well in these books, uh, you mix it up and now we don't know what we're supposed to think about anyone. That there is no, we, we have to approach the story without any of those preconceived biases. Right. And what's wonderful in story, too, is we have all this shorthand we use in stories to, like, tell the audience different things. So, like, if you're watching a TV show and a woman gets up in the morning and she feels a little nauseous, you know right away. You're like, oh, she's pregnant. Like, that's just, that's our, uh, do women get pregnant and not get nauseous before they find out they're pregnant? Yeah, like, all the time. Uh, But it's, like, this way that we communicate. Uh, Uh... certain things. So what's fun in fiction is that you can use those and subvert those expectations. Mm-hmm. And suddenly everyone's like, wait, what? I thought she was pregnant, but it turns out what, I don't know. She had food poisoning or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's part of the fun. What I love about these books, there are these moments that I was like, even as I was writing them, I felt such glee. I'm like, cause part of what I'm doing is I'll say to the audience, like stand right here right here on the floor and then pull this lever, (laughs) you know, and they have Mm -hmm. no idea they're standing on a trap door, some of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they get to have this amazing ride. Uh, And it just makes me so happy. Like, uh, and what I love, Josh, I I love for me, I've learned so much about God and about the world through reading fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know that's not typically what we roll out as like, here's a way to grow in your faith or as a person. But for me, that's been true. There's been so many works of fiction that have been transformative for me. So I love writing books that give an opportunity to the reader to say, like, if you read this, you're going to have fun. And at the end, it might just give you an insight or change something in your world in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's just delightful. I love it when I find books like that. And I, I definitely that's my target when I'm writing my books. Yeah, yeah, we're we're able to take these ideas. Some, you know, fiction allows us to take these things to an extreme that we may not otherwise see or understand in mm-hmm. our in our own reality. Uh, but we yeah. put it in fiction. We sort of test the boundaries with it in story to you know play around with it and see how the story, whatever the issue is in reality how it can be told in fiction what uh, i'll just follow up follow up with this what novels specifically uh have have 
been transformative for you? Oh man, so many. Um, you know, there's a, I'll give you a couple examples. There's a wonderful short story by Flannery O'Connor that I'm blanking on the name right now. That is about a, uh, a person who is neither male nor female, like has the physical attributes of both. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which at her time they would have called her hermaphrodite. That language is not necessarily considered uh, acceptable today. Uh, so someone with genetic signifiers of, of two different genders, right? Mm-hmm. And the story is all about that person is living as a circus freak. People come through and look at them, and sometimes they laugh, and sometimes they're amazed, and all these things. And it's all kind of told from the point of view of this person. I remember the last line or close to the last line says something like, um, so this is that person talking and they say something about how what the the people at the circus don't realize or are learning to realize is that they have come and seen a person made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. I remember I read that and I was like, whoa, (laughs) like we have all these books and all these conversations about what does it mean to be transgender and what is gender and what about people, you know, all these uh, 800 chapter books parsing scripture and all this. And Flannery O'Connor in this short little story brought me back to the most important thing, which was this is a human being made in the image of God. And I was like, oh, wow, like that hits deep, right? Um, so I think there's moments like that. There's tons of books. Uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, I read mm-hmm. when I was uh, around eight years old. Uh, and that's a book that I have complex feelings about now. There's a lot of weird racist things in it. Right. There's some yeah. sexism issues. There's the problem of Susan. Like, uh, so many problems you're trying to figure out while you read. But there's this moment where there's a, a calamine soldier, so the, the bad guys, basically, uh, in a lot of Narnia, and mm-hmm. he accidentally gets into heaven. And when I was eight years old, the idea of someone accidentally getting into heaven, he's a servant of Tash, not Aslan, was so astonishing, so, like, inexplicable, that literally for years that idea kept coming back and I'm like, what does that mean? And I think that that really moved, just asking that question, it wasn't a question in my religious community. It wasn't a question at my church or at my Christian school. Um, But what it opened up was this recognition of God's mercy, God's love and God's character being a central piece of the question of what happens after we die. We have to account for that. So in the places where things are unclear of exactly where it works, that I can rely on, you know, Aslan is Jesus. And there, well, you know, whatever, that's a bigger conversation. (laughs) But there's this idea that uh, what if, what if I don't actually know exactly how it works, but I do know that God is loving and just Mm -hmm. and merciful and kind. Um, What does that mean? Well, it means that, Whatever happens, I know it's not going to be unjust. I know it's not going to be wrong. I know it's not going to be immoral. So whatever God does in that situation, I, I, I can trust it'll be those things, those positive things. 
So it really changes the way you talk about things or think about them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, there's a lot of other examples. Certainly, John Steinbeck, who's not a Christian, uh, a lot of his work has been really formative for me in a variety of ways. There's a Catholic writer named Gene Wolfe who wrote a lot of science fiction and fantasy whose work has been really meaningful to me. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of others. Uh, uh, you know, in the comic world as well, you've got Gene Yang, who's done some just amazing graphic novels that are transformative. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. We could probably do an hour's podcast about this. Mm-hmm. Uh is yeah. there any is there anyone who's who is a, a contemporary who's still writing today? Uh, so Gene Yang is mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. for sure. Um, let's see who else. Uh, uh, there's a woman named Connie Willis who writes science fiction mostly, who has really uh, beautiful and interesting um, books about like, like she has a whole series about time travel. Uh, and a lot of the story is actually like, uh, you know, there's always the rules of time travel and hers, the time. Yeah. And hers, the kind of like time stream is always correcting things. Mm -hmm. And as you get deep into the series, you realize that maybe the time stream is not just a force, but maybe a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you get into these really deep questions about, um, sovereignty and what is best for humanity and things like that. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her probably most famous books in that series is uh, two books about World War II called uh, Blackout and All's Clear. Those mm-hmm. are great. Um, so do, I'm going to try to tie this back because I didn't have you on this podcast for you to talk about other people's books. Uh, only but i love um, it i yes and i do too and i'm over here you know writing down recommendations and because it's not often in in the work that i do um i that first of all there are so many books and there are so many authors um that that i'm always delighted when someone else does the work of telling me which ones to read uh because it, it can be difficult for me as someone who's already reading so much, um, to find new, uh, new authors. Um, I think your, your Flannery O'Connor story, uh, a, a temple of the Holy ghost, I think is the title. Oh yeah. That's the okay. one. That's okay. the one. Um, so for those of you that are now interested in that story, that'll give you a little more to, to go on when you Google it. Um, None of these, and I, I'm going to try to tie this back into just the concept of Christian fiction, because obviously these books are published mm-hmm. by Tyndale House. Um, the examples that you are giving me are not really within what most people would consider to be Christian fiction. Yeah. Um, your books are, th- and, and this is a bigger discussion of like, what is Christian fiction? Uh, that's... That in and of itself is a very difficult question to answer. And I usually, whenever anyone asks me that question, my typical response uh, used to be, well, do they belong to the Christian Booksellers Association? That makes it Christian fiction. Like just from a publishing, from a, from like a practical standpoint. uh, I'm, because there are some, some books that I, they're published by what we would term Christian publishers that really, could be 
in um you know it, like it just depends on like what what do you mean by that but every single author you said doesn't really fall within that so is your writing different or like what is your i don't even know what my question yeah. is what is your pers- perspective on christian fiction especially considering that you write under that umbrella yeah that's a great question josh um i would say this uh, uh i think a lot of times when we say christian fiction there's so many different ways we can answer that question but the one i find the answer i find most useful is who is your target audience with this book mm-hmm. so if i write a uh, amish romance about a uh, yeah an, uh, an amish man who falls in love with a woman from outside the community uh, who is struggling with her faith. We know most likely that's a book targeting evangelical women, primarily, uh, of a certain age, a certain preference in books, like all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It's not designed for me to hand to an atheist friend, right? right. Um, wow. Yeah. And now that doesn't mean atheists don't like it. There probably are some who are like, I just love Christian, Christian Amish <laughs> fiction. I don't know what it is. Uh, and that's okay. That's individual taste. Uh, but the question is, who are we targeting, right? Mm-hmm. So my books, are they Christian fiction? I would say they're inclusive of Christian fiction, this trilogy in, in particular. Uh, it's designed to be something that a Christian or someone who's not a Christian or someone who is but is feeling uncomfortable about the fact that they are uh, could read it and not be thrown out of the book, Right. Um, so, like, you read the Crescent Stone, there's not a Jesus stand-in. There are people of faith in the book. So there's a woman named Shula who's from the Middle East, but she comes from a Christian family who's in the book. Uh, Madeline has some sort of, like, I don't know, mild attachment to essentially white Christian culture. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are these, like, connections, but they're not they're not the center of the book. Um, they're just characters. Uh, so, for instance, I just read a book recently by my friend. Her name's uh, S.B. Divya, uh, and she wrote a book called Machinehood. And it has characters who are Muslim, Hindu, and Christian all interacting uh, all around this question of AI and the gig economy and all this. It's, it's, not a, it's not a religious book. It just has religious characters and themes in it. And so I'm a Christian. Uh, I can still read and enjoy it, right? So anyway, all that to say, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Christian fiction. I think it, it's designed for something really uh, specific, which is to provide Christians with fiction that is safe, right? That they know that it's going to not make fun of their faith, uh, not undermine their faith, uh, and that might even inspire them. So we sometimes we call it inspirational fiction, right? Hmm. Um, so And there's a really specific purpose for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's to be embraced and enjoyed by those who it's for. Um, and yeah, I tend to, the books that speak to me tend to not be those books, because oftentimes, because of your audience, you can embrace the easier answer, right? Um, you can have the moment where the woman who's wrestling with her faith decides, of course, I'm going to follow Jesus. And actually, the simple life of the Amish sounds pretty good to me. Uh, in real life, that's a pretty complicated decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the in the world of Christian fiction, it doesn't have to be. Uh, 
so yeah, that that's probably where I would start the answer is like who's our audience? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Sunlit Land books are designed to be able to give. Now they're young adult, uh, so that narrows our audience. Uh, they are clean, right? They're they're able to walk into the Christian part of Christian fiction. Uh, they're not anti-Christ in any way. In fact, they're pro a lot of things that we would say are really core Christian values, like uh, faithfulness and family and friendship, uh, justice, you know, all these things. Uh, and at the same time, I have a bunch of fans who are not Christians. In fact, <laughs> some of my favorite reviewers are these two darling young women. Uh, I mean, they're in their 20s. They're not, you know, they're not children who do a, uh, they call it drunk book reviews. Apparently this is like a thing, like there's a whole subculture of this. But what they do is they read books while they're drinking and then say like, read this book paired with this alcohol. And uh, one of them has become just one of my biggest fans. I hear from her every once in a while and she's delightful. She's not a Christian. Uh, She's very focused on alcohol uh, in general. Um, But I just love her. So yeah, I, I think so. This is definitely printed by a, a Christian publisher, uh, and we were up front from the beginning. Like I talked to Linda and said, I really like this book to not be the easy answer. Jesus shows up and we fix this at the end books, and she's like, Oh yeah, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. So she really let me push into that space, and so did Tyndale, which I think mm-hmm. is really, really wonderful of them. Yeah, I want to say I really appreciate Tyndale for allowing you the space to do that because in in a publishing world where uh, it, it seems like it's at, from a publisher's perspective, then it is much harder to to get a book out that is risky for them. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you're just not seeing that the industry is really allowing that at the current, you know, at this current point. And, uh, so for them, it seems like this, this was, you know, not that like, like I'm not gonna say everything Tyndale publishes. This is like absolutely amazing. I'm sure they would love for me to say that most of the things that Tyndale publish are very good. Um, their acquisitions editors do a wonderful job and they're, they're, you know, everyone, it's a, it's a very, I, I love them as an organization, but there is still a sense in which this series was a risk for them. Was there, was there ever a sense of like how you're working things out to be like, you know, this will work out? Um, or was it just like, okay, no, Matt, you've got this, you know, green light all the um, way? I mean, I will say my first book with Tyndale was called Imaginary Jesus. And the first mm-hmm. cover had like kind of a fake Jesus <laughs> with star glasses on. So they, mm-hmm. they've known me a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, these books, you know, it's great. I've only received really strong support from everyone at Tyndale with these books. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone who read them, uh, who talked to me anyway, really loved them. And in fact, they even made a new imprint. So what's common in, in publishers, they'll have imprints for different kinds of books. Right. Uh, so you might have a young adult imprint or a children's imprint or, you know, whatever. They made an imprint called Wander. So if you look, you won't see this on the spine of Crescent Stone, but if you look on the spine of The Heartwood Crown, which is the second book, and presumably of The Story King, I haven't seen the final the final copy yet, you'll see this imprint for Wander. So it, it moves you, it's not the Tyndale logo, it's a different logo, 
And kind of the idea of wander is for these kind of in-between books, books that wander in and out of easy categorization, books that, uh, and, and they use actually the uh, Tolkien quote, right? Not all who wander are lost. Mm-hmm. That we can move in and out as people, uh, people following Jesus are people on the edge, on the limits, or they, or we should be. And to walk in and out of different societies, different places, uh, being true to Christ, being true to ourselves, uh, but like Paul says, being all things to all people. So that's really the idea of the Wander imprint, and my books really fit really well in that philosophy. So yeah, I didn't get any, I can't remember a single instance of pushback on some of the things I asked to do. Some of which, yeah, I think in the world of Christian fiction, for sure, might feel a little bit edgy, um, mm-hmm. maybe more than a little bit. Uh, and in the world of, and that might be true in the world of general fiction, too. Like, there are some decisions uh, that were made in the books that might have raised some eyebrows, I guess. But mm-hmm. I don't know, even the reviews like uh, Kirkus, which is a big, mm-hmm. uh, like, influential secular uh reviewing kind of magazine. Kirkus gave these books really strong, positive reviews, which I was so thrilled by. And it didn't, you know, there was no like, uh, these are Christian books with this message. It was like, these are good books. You should probably yeah. read them. Yeah. 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 That's really good. Uh, there was a two year gap between books two and three. And uh, <laughs> this is, this is part of why I, I didn't get into this series at the beginning. Uh, so th- this is a good question to ask. I'm 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 starting to yeah. to understand. Um, and so I guess first of all, thank you because I don't know that I would have actually come to the series if it had been if if there hadn't been a gap. Um, because uh, I I I had taken a break from Life is Story for a couple of years just because of work commitments, and yeah. uh, it wasn't until after the Heartwood Crown had been released in 2019, or maybe right around then, that that I had started up again. Uh, we've I've been doing this since 2010-ish, 2011, I think, as Life is Story. Uh, but just because of the need to be an adult, and um, I had a lot of work commitments at the time, I had to step back from this. This is my fun thing that I do. Uh, but I had, I had come back to it, and... I didn't know of this series that you had written uh, until after book two. And then I just, I, I kind of, I, I put it aside. I actually had a note in my phone that was like, you know, when you hear about book three, you know, when that hits your radar, then ask about books one and two and we'll get this series going. And then it never happened. And I, and, you know, I didn't think that much about it because I wasn't the person who was waiting for two years on book three. Uh, but then I went back to look at it and I was like, I really remember. And there was, so there's, so why, why the, why the off year? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as a reader, you're probably aware this is relatively common in uh, trilogies. Uh, and there's a few things that work in, but here's the main one that you probably wouldn't expect. It's really common, not just in Christian publishing, but in publishing in general that the idea for a publisher of buying three books, not knowing how any of them are going to do, is pretty daunting. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of resources and time, 
you're like, what if the first book tanks and is terrible? Uh, at the same time, you don't want to just buy one because what if the first one does amazing? Then you want to be sure that you're the ones that have the rights to the second book, right? So it's actually relatively common for an author to pitch a trilogy, especially in fantasy and science fiction world, like trilogy is normal for a fantasy, right? Uh, and for a publisher to go like, we'll buy the first two and we'll see how it goes. And that's basically what happened with us is they bought the first two. And then the question is, uh, let's wait and see how the, so the first one does fine, right? Uh, and then the question is, well, is the second one going to do okay? And is it going to list sales of the first one? You know, those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. So we didn't talk about a contract. I mean, we talked, but we didn't have a serious, like, it's time to sign some paperwork until the second book came out. Now, I could have gone and written the third one in the meantime. Uh, and, like, as soon as I signed the contract, my editor was like, how quick can you get it? Uh but but the reality is that I had not started writing until we signed the contract. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the main reason. And then the other one is, gosh, the third book of a trilogy. This was my first time, by the way, ending a trilogy. And the pressure to want to make sure that these characters I loved had a good exit, like we might not write them again, uh, to make sure that it was meaningful, that we picked up most of the you know, loose ends, that it was still enjoyable and not just, you know, here's 14 things that need to happen in this chapter. Mm -hmm. And there were things I had, like, promised in book one that need to be paid off in book three. So there's just a lot of stuff. Uh, and I couldn't have done it all. My amazing editor, Sarah Rubio, uh, was kind of the main person to walk through all three of, bo all three of the books. Um yeah, she she did a lot of the heavy lifting, actually, and making sure I was hitting everything I promised I would. But yeah, that, that's the main answer, Josh, is part of it's just the reality of the publishing world. And part of it is, you know, I didn't I didn't take the chance to write the book until I was sure we were going to have a contract. Right. Yeah. And that, that makes that makes sense. And so, though, for those of you that have been waiting for, you know, three years now to to get to book three, then uh, this is why it's not it's uh <laughs> It's just the way it goes. It's uh, you, gotta, you have to deal with it. Um, I hate asking this question, but we'll, we'll end the interview here. There's there's so much more that we could talk about, but this has already been sort of a long, uh, a long conversation. So for those of you that are still listening, um, <laughs> congratulations! And uh, for those of you, you better that, all still be listening. You, you, better, listening, should, you should how be listening. Dare you? You know, you have the ability <laughs> to pause this whenever you want and come back to it whenever you want. You don't have to listen to it in one sitting. That's perfectly mm. fine. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I, I always end by asking this question, and I always feel bad about it because, especially now, because you're coming in and you're, you're pitching book three, the end of a trilogy that has been, you know, years and years in the making for you. Um, but there's always the question of, where do you where do you go from here? What's next? What do you got coming up? Oh man, uh, it's actually a great question. So I've got the Story King coming out in June, mm -hmm. and then in August I have a nonfiction book called Journey to Love coming out, which is a book. It's it's a short book, a simple book about our desire to have more love in our lives and to be more loving, and how do we do that? Uh, really story-focused, 
uh, reflections on how to be a more loving person and how to receive more love in our lives. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then the other thing, so I haven't actually publicly, let's see, how soon is this going up, Josh? Uh, this won't go up until the Story King releases. So okay, early, early June. So this is the first time, uh, theoretically, this is the first time that I've kind of said this publicly. I just got a job writing on a TV show. Uh, and oh, wow. I can't really say anything about it at this point, except that starting this spring, uh, by the time Story King comes out, I should have been working for a while on this TV show that'll come out probably early in 2021. Uh, and I should mention my delightful editor at Tyndale has said, you know, we're open to more stories set in the sunlight. Lane. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we might have another one of those one day. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's some of my upcoming projects. Wow, huh. writing for TV—that—that's a—that's a bit of a different thing than writing a novel. How do you, um, how do you expect that those skills will transfer? Well, I've already, uh, I've already done a screenplay that's in right now. They're out raising the money for, uh, for a feature, and I've got another feature that we're in talks with Sony about right now. So this is—I've been working on it for a while. Uh, the the skill set. I think what's fun about screenplays is screenplays are, it boils down almost completely to just what do you see and how do people talk? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the things that you have to describe in a novel, the cinematographer is going to do that. The, the actor is going to do it, right? You don't have to say how someone says something or if they're being sarcastic, the, the, the actor takes care of that mm-hmm. or the director. Um, and mood is set by music and like all these sorts of things. So there's a way in which it's a really stripped down, simple way of writing. Um, it's more complicated in a variety of other ways. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it. It's just a, mm-hmm. it's a fun way to tell a story. And I'm a really collaborative writer anyway. Like I love working with my editors and different people uh, in the process. So screenwriting is much more collaborative. So right now, at least, I'm really enjoying that piece of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that'll be a new experience, and it, well, I'll have to have you back on uh, when your nonfiction piece releases in August, and maybe you can tell us a little more about um, the TV job, and then and then you know I, I'm just going to assume until you tell me otherwise that it's a Disney Plus Marvel TV series. So, <laughs> Um, well, I'm until, pretty sure I couldn't even tell you I was working. On it, that I, this is that's probably probably accurate. Probably accurate. The NDAs I'm sure are insane. Uh, but still, still, that's where uh, that's where I'm just going to be at. I'm just going to be there until you tell me uh, otherwise. I've been teasing my kids. Like we talk sometimes. I watch uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which is mm-hmm. the current show coming out every week at this time while we're doing the interview with my 11 year old every week, uh, and the kids have been like, what would you like? What somebody said, what TV show would you want to write? If you were writing a Marvel show. And I was like, oh, I want to do one about Thanos when he's a farmer on that planet. <laughs> called Purple thumb. Mm-hmm. It's all about regret and achieving everything mm-hmm. you wanted. But now you're sad. Like all stuff. My 11 year old obsessed. She's like, I want to watch purple thumb. When's that coming out? <laughs> I'm like, oh, gosh. This is, this is the world we're in now. Mm-hmm. She actually mm-hmm. thinks it's a great idea. Yeah, well, I mean, if hey, you might pitch it because it seems like Disney's doing doing everything they can. So 
I'd and love to work for Marvel or Disney. So uh, for all the Marvel and Disney execs out there, let's let's grab a meeting. I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. Yeah, they all listen to this podcast. I'm sure uh, uh, they so might. You never know. If, if it happens, then I, I expect I expect to get some credit in some way, shape, you, or form. Oh, Josh, if that happens, you'll get a set visit for sure. <laughs> all right, all right, it's a deal. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for your time today and for just oh man, the whole breadth of conversation we've had, and for your books and uh, for your writing in general. The, the themes you bring up uh, again. This is some. This is some of the most transformational storytelling that I have read in a very long time. And so I'm very, I'm, re- I'm really enjoying it. Like I, I almost went, the, I have the interview all set up. I'm just going to gut through it. I'm just going to read through all the, you know, speed read through them all. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I had, this is like, no, the story deserves the time. Uh, so I, we get off here and I'm going to spend about 30 minutes before my bedtime, um, finishing up, finishing up book two so I can get started on book three tomorrow. So thank That's you for awesome. your time. Thank you for your books. My pleasure. I really, my really pleasure. appreciate it. Yeah. When you're done with Story King, we'll, we'll have a, we'll, we'll do a spoiler filled discussion and we'll just talk about the characters in the world. That'll be fine. All right. Yeah. We'll set it up. All right. Cool. Thanks, All right, Josh. that was Super great. Fun. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. So um, I'll get this set up to go maybe, you know, right around the release of Story King. And okay. then um, if you want to come back on and, and do a second one, then may, I'll maybe release that maybe a couple weeks after just to kind of give it some spacing. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I have That'd your email fun. address. I have your email address. I'll just get in touch with you when we can. Perfect. Um, to get that set up but yeah so i appreciate All right, it man well 